0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is someone I have been trying to bring on for quite a while now, so I'm super chuffed to be able to welcome her. Would you like to introduce yourself, Molly?
1: Yes, Vic, thank you for having me. Um, So, yeah, I'm Molly Martin, and I'm an artist and illustrator as well as a textile repairer based in London.
0: And you're also an author.
1: And I'm also an author. I always forget to say that bit. (laughs) Because I've only written one book. But it does make me a writer, I suppose, technically.
0: It certainly does. Now, this was a book you wrote during lockdown. Uh, It's called The Art of Repair. Would you like to talk a bit about it? And how did it come about?
1: Yeah, so... It's a bit of a story, really, because it all starts at the beginning of my textile repair journey which which came about quite organically um and I say in the book in the long introduction that it all kind of stems from the start where my mum uh I grew up in a kind of house of making hands, so my dad's a special effects model maker, and my mum's a a physiotherapist, but she also is the hat maker. And so I was around lots of creativity. And with with textiles, it was always something I dabbled in. Um, I was u- used to sew and stitch things together and make clothes for my dolls. And then when it came to my dad, he's an amazing draftsman as well. So it kind of, it sort of makes a lot of sense that I became an illustrator in a lot of ways. A lot of my, my both my aunties are illustrators too. Anyway, so I studied illustration, but when I m- moved to London, uh, in 2014, I think it was, I needed some part time work and I was trying my best to be a freelance illustrator. But it's the classic thing is if you're going to be a freelancer, you have to think of the other job that you're going to have to have to support yourself, particularly in the big city. And um, and I thought, well, what am I good at? What can I what else can I do that feels more hands on, something I can apply myself to? Um, which exists already. So I started thinking, okay, I'm good with my hands. I'm good at sewing. Maybe I should be an embroiderer, or I could work at like a ballet ballet shoe making factory. Or something. Wow. I was looking at all sorts of things, and um, but I remember thinking, okay, I can sew. I can I can do something practical, that might you know be useful in the theatre or conservation even. And while I was doing that, I ended up being a, a artist assistant for a textile artist called Rosalind Wyatt and through that I gained a lot more experience with using my hands and sewing and she often did work on ancient and vintage and antique pieces and I slowly became more interested in restoration and how important it is to cre- to kind of keep these vintage pieces of textile alive The story behind them, Um, and it was around then that I started taking on my own little commissions and saying, you know, and darning people's things because I was interested in it. And this pile of from my friends' clothes just started growing and growing, and and I thought, oh, this is there's a real need for this. There's um, an interest in it, and or I was at least interested in the fact that in this day and age we're surrounded by shops full of new clothes and they're cheap we don't have to be you know well off to afford them uh eBay I mean you know it's endless but you can yeah you can buy online everything so quick and however it was so interesting to me that despite that people still find it difficult to get rid of their old clothes and why was that and it generally came down to the fact that when you've got a favorite pair of jeans that just fit you right it's really hard to replace them because the way that you move and your body the shape of it your clothes if they're made well normally sort of accommodate that and fit to it really well um but also because of the sentimental sentimentality around clothing and the way we hold on to these memories within our clothes and I would ask these friends of mine, you know, what does this mean to you? Where did you get it? And started making little notes. Um, and these notes ended up being my book, um, a little bit. And it, I mean, they developed, but I basically started this repair business and started working with brands like toast and egg. They're not related, but they are both <laughs> toast and egg. Um, <laughs> and, uh, which I always have to explain now and then, but, um, so I was working with egg, With it was like really, really beautiful, gorgeous fabrics, which, you know, were just so fine. And that was fascinating to, you know, mend and everything had to be done by hand. Um, and then that, that developed into doing workshops with toast. And I, so I would teach these workshops with, total strangers who would bring their garments and that we would talk about how to mend them and and then the other element of the book idea came into it so I had my notes on where clothes came from how to rep- repair them etc and then the other element is more around the philosophy and mindfulness around repair and how it can make us feel so I would watch these people just doing tiny stabbing stitches I would always use a Japanese technique called sashiko which is ancient um ancient way of mending by hand which is really effective restoration work but is relatively quite straightforward to do and to teach and I would just watch these you know yeah people kind of relax into it and they'd always start quite tense and nervous and usually someone always in any group will always put their hand up and say by the way I've never done this before I don't know what I'm doing it's probably going to be rubbish and then I would say that doesn't matter we're we're to forget about it being perfect that's what we're always being told things we all need to be perfect but actually there's beauty in the broken and wonky <laughs> and um and i think that get, i think it just so easily turned into a kind of lovely philosophy and a way of looking at yourself your clothes and life um and therefore i kind of knew i had i had something to say about it and someone said to me or asked me how it was all going with my workshops which were kind of when I first started doing it no one was really talking about repair that much and it started really kicking off and I was busy and someone said oh how's um how's it all going and I was like oh it's really great I but I just feel like I'm repeating myself all the time (laughs) I keep telling the same stories and I keep and I keep uh, feeling I'm bored of saying the same stuff constantly. And I wish I could just give people something to read. And then the woman I was talking to happened to be an author called Emma Craigie. And she set me up with her publishers and said, I think you should speak to some publishers and you should talk to short books. Um, her publisher. And and we did. And I met them and they were lovely. And totally enthusiastic about my ideas and and that's where it all began
0: <laughs> and a lovely book it is as well i very <laughs> much enjoyed reading it
1: thank you Nick.
0: now the book is built up of um, practical pieces historical pieces and stories about various garments mm. um, you have a, a lovely chapter on the history of repairing um, a lot of wartime stuff, uh, rationing and so forth. Would you like to get into that a bit?
1: Yeah, that's kind of a good way to begin, really, because uh, like any big piece of writing or dissertation, usually it's good to cite the history first. And uh, there's yeah, there's a little section just on the history of even the needle and thread and how important it was that that was made, because actually the first humans would have been in warmer climates and needed to migrate or you know ended up doing so and they wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't for the fact that they could clothe themselves with furs and leathers so that's sort of a good way you know interesting to even begin there and I felt like a vital piece of history to put in because I'm so in I'm I've always been interested in tools and actually I feel like needle and threads are often sort of seen as so I don't know, it's very haberdashery it's not they're not particularly hard wearing or hardcore, but I think they really are and um, and and they're the most ancient forms of tools in many ways um so but yeah, the history of mending is interesting um because ultimately humans have been mending things forever, and they would have had to back in you know the ancient world where you couldn't just go down. The shop and buy a new smock <laughs> so um so yeah there's an ancient uh example of an ancient uh Egyptian tunic which is covered in dance and um and it's so beautiful I think it's actually very artfully done they've chosen different colors and it's and it's very neat and purposeful and I suppose it's I wanted to talk about the way we used to use repair as a fundamental way of getting by, because we don't have to do that now, but, and, and for a lot of reasons, that's fantastically good, particularly for people who can't afford many clothes, but I find it inspiring that just, you know, in my granny's, um, youth, she would have just had to know how to mend her socks and it was something that was quite ordinary but brought them together as a like a family or at school she mended socks and her father mended socks my grandpa and used to find great joy in it and I suppose it just makes my idea about bringing that up or highlighting it was what can we learn from that generation who had to really look after what they wore and because of certain emergencies like war and being a soldier uh, having to be able to mend your own kit was really vital and it was part of learning to be a soldier as well as everything else that comes with it and I think for me I can relate it to the emergency we're in now and actually we do need to start taking care of what we own because we don't we're overwhelmed with things that are we we have too much basically and if we only learn a bit from the generations who didn't have much at all and they had to look after their things perhaps we can take a bit of that and look after what we have and make things last a bit longer which hopefully would lead to not as much waste so
0: they did have a very good campaign for it during second world war with the make do and mend and well the clothes were rationed and um, i think they even were given sewing kits to help them look after their clothes
1: yeah that's right they um they did and it was yeah it was kind of part of the camaraderie um of you know to kind of bring the women and families together while their sons and fathers and brothers were all all fighting um they would have these kind of make do and mend uh, workshops where they would make, you know, knit and make the uniforms that they need. But also they would make husifs, which is a repair kit basically, and it was it's it's pronounced hussif. h u s s i f. But strange word. I know, but it's a it's basically a it's one way or the other. I've forgotten now, but it comes from housewife. So it was. And it changed along the years from housewife to hussif, and okay. and it's because the housewives would make them for the soldiers, and uh, so they were a little kind of roll pack, kind of like a that would you know like in a, if you had bandages and tape and that kind of thing for your wounds. They also had these little beautiful little purses which you'd roll out, and they would have scissors, needles, buttons safety pins, anything that you might need to, you know, repair a button or stitch a collar down or whatever, do a darn. Um, so the women would make those for the soldiers or they would take them off uh, to war. And um and of course every all the soldiers' kits would have been made beautifully. I mean, hard wearing wool, waterproof, kind of Guernsey jumper style um, at sea. Uh, which were really made to last because they couldn't take much with them. So they had to have really hardy clothes. And um, But when eventually they did break, they would all have known how to mend them, even if they were a bit rough and ready.
0: <laughs> now, I was going to ask you about visible versus invisible mending. Um, I had a, some guests a few weeks back and they were a bit sort of, oh, all this virtual si- virtue signalling visible mending, or um I have to admit, when I mend things, I try to make it as perfect as possible. But you have a different angle on that. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: That's interesting, yeah. I well, I really I'm not I'm not actually strongly either way. But it's a good question. From a mender to a mender. Um I personally, Nick, when I mend something, I normally I'd like I like it to be quite neat, um, just as a kind of test for myself, really. Um, but also, the neater you make it, the stronger it'll be, most likely anyway. And then the colour, I always say in my workshops, is obviously entirely up to you. But I also think there's it's worth talking about, you know, what colour actually is a really good topic because are certain because I don't if you want to do a really massively bright yellow darn on a blue jumper I think that can look amazing and and I remember seeing this girl's darn jumper when I was at uni actually in Falmouth and she it was like this beautiful old grey and kind of like mossy jumper and it had loads of red darns all over the elbows and I just thought it looked amazing and it was a real celebration I think that's the difference between visible and invisible visible mending is all about celebrating breaks and how and kind of you know exploring what that means and challenging the status quo of being perfect looking symmetrical looking good and smart and also if it's if it's visible and it's beautifully done I think it sparks interest and people go oh is that did you do that and then you can have a conversation about mending and why it's good um whereas an invisible mending is is also something that I find beautiful and fascinating and interesting when it's been done really exquisitely and I've seen examples far greater than my work where it's almost impossible to see it because they've they've just done the most intricate weave with new threads which are the perfect colour and all that kind of thing. And I think that's great. And I was doing more of that kind of work on my egg garments when I was um an in-house repairer for them because um most of the clients wanted it to be invisible. And usually if you if I get a repair client they want it to be invisible. But when I do workshops with people mending their own clothes, they like it being visible because they want to sort of celebrate it and go home with something that they can be proud of and and show, show off. So I don't know. I think it takes... Um, what do you prefer then? You prefer invisible? What? I mean, <laughs> I, when I
0: have something that is broken, I mean, I try my best to repair it. And it's never honestly really struck me that I could sort of make the repair part of a design, make it something greater than it was before. Yeah. Um, but it's a fascinating thing. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the sashiko stitching earlier, yeah. And the Japanese—they have sort of their whole uh, whole culture around repairing.
1: Mm, yeah, because they have the the kintsuki mending the broken pottery with gold and bringing out the broken in a celebratory way. And sashiko repair is kind of a beautiful way of mending which is visible so for those of you, those of you who don't know it's basically a reinforcement technique where you if you have a gigantic tear on your jeans or your elbow but it, and it's a woven material that's quite that's an important different differentiation is <laughs> um with woven wo- woven garments you can darn and patch but with knitwear generally you just darn much easier to darn because with wool, you have to match a fabric when you're using the patching technique, and it's very difficult to find a patch of knitting unless you um, boil it and you shrink it, and then you can cut it. Anyway, so Sashiko is a mending technique where you have a tear or a piece of garment that's getting really thin, and you find a piece of cloth that matches the weight and actually top tip it needs to be thinner than the garment itself so mending a pair of jeans with a new piece of denim would make your life harder because you're stitching through a thick piece of fabric and that can cause Mm -hmm. more friction um but you stitch with cotton thread all the way through the patch and the tear sort of mushing them together neatly into a kind of wadding and it's just stops the tear from getting any bigger but it also reinforces the surrounding fabric and in the kind of Edo period 1400s Japan northern Japan uh they they were experts on this and it was the peasants and the poor who would be unable to buy new cloth and make new clothes so what they would do is make their clothes last for for as long as possible and would barter for scraps uh from ships coming up from the south and take these scraps which were just so precious and they could literally be like as big as less smaller than your hand and that would be crucial to mending your jacket or your bed linen or your saddle Um, and they would just stitch it right onto the garment and it would last for a lot longer so it would be visible but it would be beautiful
0: and basically, using that technique, I suppose you could keep a garment going infinitely.
1: well, pretty pretty far, because there are some amazing um, examples of uh, borrow garments, which which is ulti- well so so Sashiko is the stitch, and borrow, which you might have heard of, is is a repaired garment, so it's basically something that's been heavily repaired is a borrow garment and there are examples still left in Japan and the v have a few as well and it they just look exquisite so so many different faded pieces and patches and stitching from years of different hands all over it and obviously at the time it would have been greatly shameful to look like that and have those clothes because you would have been so obviously poor but today we can see I think it's just an amazing example of human endurance, really, and skill.
0: And also an expression of wabi-sabi.
1: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) wabi-sabi. Wabi-sabi. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. (laughs) Yeah, so wabi-sabi is like, we don't really have an equivalent in the Western world, but it's an Eastern philosophy, and it's all about um, embracing imperfection, celebrating the rough and crooked and um and that can be applied onto ourselves as well as our clothes and the things that we use so um yeah finding beauty in our age which we all do we all age and I think that was kind of the final the final sort of arching thought of that that my book I really wanted to kind of achieve was to sort of just look at what what it means to grow old and look at it a bit differently in the in the western world we're often uh well we're constantly being told to look younger and to stop the aging mm. process as quickly as possible and to start thinking about it when you're a teenager you know and and that aging is bad and that it should be uh stopped and slowed down um and then when it and even it kind it's funny because it comes even into uh how we see the elderly and and the kind of general consensus seemingly in the west is that it, you're a bit of a nuisance when you get old <laughs> and um <laughs> but in you know even native american um culture they 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 saw their elders as wise the wise ones that they sought advice from and truth and um yeah wisdom so it's Mm. it's funny i think we've we we grew out of it and i and i think actually if we apply that kind of thinking to our objects it doesn't have to be clothes it can be just you know what you eat from and the tables you use the chairs you buy and then that comes into this kind of this new culture which has been growing about investing in beautiful things that are made well and then you can have them for your life instead of for a year. So yeah. And I think so that's that's an important
0: all, point, isn't it?
1: That yeah.
0: if you have good things, they are repairable versus mm. having things that are poorly made to start with. Mm. They're not really I mean, they won't last, you can't repair them,
1: yeah, and I mean that, and it's funny because there's a place in our in our world for um, you know cheap, affordable things. I mean, we've all shopped in Ikea <laughs> and and yeah. thank God it's there because there's been many a time I can't afford a good wardrobe or a nice bed you know and you get through it and you and but it doesn't last i mean i've i've yeah i I remember i remember buying a bed from ikea at uni and it just fell apart because you know the classic ikea thing is you make it once and it's great as soon as you take it apart and try and put it back together nothing fits (laughs) it's just i mean in my experience probably just lost the instruction
0: i think if you actually this is uh in in me being an engineer i think if you actually take it carefully apart and then transport it and then put it up again you might stand a chance but the moment you try to move it without dismantling it it's not gonna it
1: just shifts (laughs) there'll
0: there'll be no uh, vabi-sabi there
1: (laughs) (laughs) no exactly but then yeah and i think that's yeah the the i went to a steiner school when i was a primary school child and um steiner is uh it's all about kind of uh, slow learning and very based very, very much in creativity and learning crafts and stuff. But the other thing that was um, memorable about Steiner School was the things that we used were all quite natural things. So every, all of the because I was in nursery there. So it was all of the objects in the playroom were wood and beautifully made. Um, which was obviously a huge privilege. And and actually, funnily enough, when I went, because I went to two different primary schools, I went to another kind of classic state school primary school and I was obsessed with felt tips because they were so bright <laughs> and plastic and amazing compared to crayons. <laughs> um, but I'm interested in the, you know, the idea of surrounding a child with handmade objects over kind of plastic throwable throwawayables um disposable things and um i think that's kind of the same thing as grabby sabby i suppose is is and and also the idea of 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 investing in objects that could be proper hand-me-downs and uh lifelong treasures rather than you know really cheap musical toys that I mean, and everyone's obsessed with the repair shop, aren't they? Because there's that programme, because there's just so much memory hinged on these, even just like toys that are just, and you're an engineer, beautifully made, so clever. And um, there's a delightful thing about even, you know, like old cars, they're just so sweet really and I mean we're just probably a bit nostalgic for it these days aren't we
0: well that's the thing we sort of think back to when all the cars looked different to each other the yeah. truth of the matter is that at that time they looked pretty much the same <laughs> as well mm. it's just that compared to today's they look different but I was thinking about that when you were talking about um, repairing garments and such that you don't use the same visible repairs on cars so you-
1: Mm. I
0: think that that would be really different.
1: Well, yeah, it's funny you say that because my, my dad is, um, he always repairs his things and his car is a real ramshackle thing with all sorts of bits and pieces <laughs> of all different oh. colours. And um, and my bike's the same, actually. I had to get my bike repaired and the main front fork needed to be replaced. Needed to be replaced and the, the um, mechanic said, oh, I'm really sorry, but we're not going to find one the same colour. And I was fine with that, but um, and I love it actually. I like the way it looks. It's a green bike with a red fork, and um, it, I think it's just kind of so classic that I'm <laughs> that I'm a mender with a broken bike that's been patched together. But I love that about bikes actually, because they can be. It's very easy to just knock different bits together, and it works because it's such a sort of simple design ultimately, and that mm. and it's a good design. Um, But it is interesting how, I think it's changing, but the general consensus around repaired things, you know, like mending a car, is you don't want a different colour bonnet. It looks bad. But only if it's the way you look at things.
0: Is that because cars are something that you're typically very proud of? And you want to sort of show off?
1: Possibly. But not
0: in the way that... I fixed this myself using scrapyard bits and baling wire. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know because there's. I, I I wonder. I suppose it is. It's what it says about you. And we are, you know, humans for however you know however long have always been quite concerned with their appearance and how it how we look to other people. I mean, it probably just goes back to even just being in tribes. And what what we're giving off, the message we're giving off with our clothes, and what we're wearing, our weapons, or our armor, and I suppose that's the same as a car.
0: <laughs> now, now in the book, you you use the terms repair and restoration, mm. which are clearly two very different things. Would you like to say something about that?
1: Well, I don't know what you mean. What would you what uh, as in restoration? Because I, I feel like that's quite similar
0: the way I sort of take it is that restoring something is to bring it back to its former state. Right. So if it's an old toy, then it's back to as it was new. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. Repair is actually just, is, is
0: things together it. slightly.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. Because I talk about the museum and, um or museum right. repair and restoration. And yeah, you're right. It's, so, I talk a lot about the VNA because they've got that a wonderful, insightful uh, series on the kind of the backlog and behind the scenes of the VNA and all the restoration work that's done there um, down to just the smallest things. It's kind of they'll have this ancient Japanese parchment with the smallest tear that you can only see with the biggest. Uh, binoculars, not binoculars, <laughs> microscope, and um and they just yeah, and they repair it so beautifully and and mostly invisibly, because I suppose they're keeping, they want to restore it to how it originally looked or as be, as as well as they possibly can. Um, but I say in the book, there's an example actually how where the original Winnie the Pooh animals, um, toys that belonged to the a real Christopher Robin got restored um, in New York and uh, where, they, where they live um, in the New York library. And, um, and actually it's impossible actually for to make them look perfect because they, they're so old and they were so loved. But there's an image of Eeyore who looked really, really haggard. <laughs> And you know, and actually, that goes with his character. He's, his tail always falls off, and he's like mopey and depressed. And he has all these beautiful patches. I've forgotten the number of them, but there was something like fifty patches on him, or something, well. which had all been lovingly done by the family. And they were just falling apart. I according to the article I read about the, about what the restoration and so they kind of gave him a whole new fur and then put um put like this sort of microscopic net over him so that it can't it won't go anywhere and it's protect bug resistant but i just felt like it lost a bit of its magic and um mm. and i think that's the only danger with restoration it done you know done you know when it's taken too far and i think that's an example i just wonder whether i mean maybe if there was no other way but um but I think that's um it's a funny thing. I wonder kind of that I, I, it looks like a lot of work is put into each piece in these museums for us to kind of still see them and, and obviously there are those places uh, the light can damage and so they're kind of the time timed and I mean that's the same in art galleries. Mm. But keeping anything alive that's old is hard, hard work. And, and what, I, what I do is very different. It's, as you say, it's kind of about not throwing something away because it's broken, keeping it alive, but you, to wear every day, to wear. It's to be used. And then when it can't be used anymore, cutting it up into bits and then using those bits for another project.
0: It's quite strange I should be talking to you today because I was at the, the rubbish pit earlier today and I was just... I, I'm always totally fascinated by what people are throwing away. <laughs> so I always mooch around. Yeah, well, it's, and yeah, It's just mind-blowing, everything that gets thrown away, which really is perfectly usable. I mean, it doesn't even need repairing.
1: Yeah. People just replace things. And... Uh, and and I find it so frustrating as well how our toast is broken, actually. And it really and I know that there's a way to fix it. I would hate to get I mean, it's one side, so I'm coping with it at the moment. But it's that kind of knowledge I find uh, tantalizing. And and I wish I wish we were taught how to repair things at school. Just like the past, because it's frustrating it's annoying when you don't know how to mend something even if it's just even if it's just like a door handle and luckily we can look it up online but I think we're all a bit despondent towards it and everything's replaceable you can just and the mystery of the bin you know you can just chuck it in the bin you don't need to think about where it's going someone's going to take it away but of course the reality of that is that Waste is a huge, huge problem, and um, it's not—it's not just it doesn't just disappear. <laughs> but yeah,
0: do you think the fact that there's more focus now on where things go when we throw them away might sort of ease us into more repairing?
1: I—I I wonder because I even I was looking at the Tetra Pack my milk was in earlier, and because uh, I was recycling it, and it actually did say this is 100% recycled already and actually it's better than glass because glass takes more energy to make and would be in, like harder to get rid of or recycle or something so i thought okay that's actually really interesting because i always get nostalgic about glass cuz <laughs> cuz you can use glass for longer and you know there's like a, i live in Greenwich and there's a shop in Greenwich called the junk shop and downstairs there's just hundreds of little bo- like blue bottles that used to be medicine and I just think they look really beautiful um and I wish we had that kind of thing there's still things like golden syrup that comes in those tins which I love um and I think that's just because it's nice to use them it's just nicer same with tomato ketchup in a bottle it just feels better doesn't it mm. than plastic um yeah
0: The strange thing here is that Norway has always been very good on uh, recycling bottles. So so we pay a fee when we buy a bottle of pop or beer or whatever Uh, and get it back when you deliver it back. But recently now they've discovered that it actually takes more energy to reuse the bottle than it costs to make a new bottle. Oh, God. Which just seems such a massive step backwards.
1: Yeah, well, I think that might be what this – I was reading earlier and I sort of had, and it, yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it? It makes you feel slightly overwhelmed. And I suppose they're trying to figure it out. You have to hope that, you know, even just getting those stats in is interesting. And, but I think there is more of an awareness, definitely. I mean, certainly with my friends who, I mean, I'm 30. And most of my friends are around. It's just a bit younger, just a bit older. Most of us are vegetarian, even, and we weren't. And it's just that kind of awareness of okay, what can I do to help? And and le- you learn and you kind of assess it and address it on your in your own world in your own house because that's all you know. That's that's what you can do on a daily level. And I th- and I think that does bringing it back to repair you know, start with just mending your jeans as well. Because also what you're doing is a small act of defiance against kind of consumerist values. And again, if you make it visible, you're highlighting it and you're saying it's okay to mend your things and you can make it look beautiful. And... that's
0: yeah, a- that's a point I really stand behind, like a sort of defiant screw you to fast fashion. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. instead of buying another £8 pair of jeans, I fixed my old ones.
1: Yeah, exactly. And goes back to why it's so important to invest if you can. And it can be so painful to spend money on clothes. And But I sort of, you know, I often suggest that's why vintage is actually pretty good because a good way to go if you can't afford brand new, and vintage can be expensive, but the reason it's, still here is because it's good quality like vintage sort of well a lot of it is
0: or because it's all made of plastic
1: <laughs> yeah well that's the other thing it's all it's i mean i know and it's difficult because the difference between a pair of levi's and a pair of cheap sort of 10 pound jeans is so obvious as soon as you start wearing them because they start sagging they fall apart they don't wash well. And then a lot of the time, it's so frustrating because in my repair workshops, a lot of the time people bring me their jeans, which are which of which were like 20 quid or something. And they they are full of polyester and they always break on the bum, bum and bum and size, and knees. And they go, can I fix these? Because because they're stretchy, so much harder. And oh, yeah. I always say, I mean, if you love them, yeah, do it. but. Next time, don't buy those jeans because <laughs> they won't last, and you'll be mending forever as well. You don't, and no one wants to be sitting mending for absolutely every day of their lives. It, you know, it's something that I enjoy doing, but it's I I I don't want my clothes to break. I want them to last, but when mm. they break, you know, and knowing when to, to to catch them as well is important. That classic, wise tailor stitch and time saves nine so seeing oh, that's, the thing.
0: It?
1: <laughs> that's the thing so when you kind of your, your jeans are going a bit thin at the knee that's a great time to do the sashiko technique because it reinforces your clothes before they tear once they have hmm. turned torn you can still do it but they you know fabric ages so it's important to yeah it's important to invest and in, if you can. And I, it's funny because I actually bought um, a really, like a pretty expensive T-shirt for me um, from Pangea. And they, they're, it, it, well, it's, it they're, they're made really well. And I've never had a T-shirt that, that was, because they're like, they can be like 50 pounds for a T-shirt, but I got it from Depop. And um, it honestly feels totally different to wear it because it kind of crinkles in a really satisfying way but I don't need to wash it much it just doesn't get sweaty it doesn't it it, it's just because it's just so natural and it's got it's been like pre-washed in a really good way and I don't know the specific facts of why it is so great but it definitely is and I can I really notice the difference which means that Again, with good quality clothing, you shouldn't have to wash it as much because washing damages your clothes and mm. and the environment as well. So it's, yeah, I feel like it sounds really complicated and difficult, but actually it's more about simplifying your life in a way, if you can.
0: I think that's very insightful because if you have less rubbish cluttering up your life, mm. then you can have more focus on important stuff
1: yeah 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 now
0: one thing i'm very curious about um toast
1: mm.
0: you run workshops for yeah. them. now my understanding is that toast is a medium-sized company that makes their money selling clothes that aren't inexpensive mm. good, good quality clothes at a fair enough price how on earth Did they get into the business of teaching their customers to repair stuff? (laughs) That seems like quite a strange move.
1: Well, because it's ironic, I guess. Uh,
0: Well, it's not really their business, is it?
1: Mm, mm. Okay, I see what you mean. They see it as an important thing to teach their customers because they have strong values about clothing. And the idea when it came to me. And and repairing was that it's important to take responsibility, I suppose, for waste that you're making by producing. And obviously, there's no such thing as kind of ethical new clothes. Really, you can't. No Mm. one can claim that. But I suppose their bit is by creating a focus or an understanding and appreciation for what clothes are who made them and how you can use them how you should wash them to make them last for as long as possible and they toast are really good at bringing together kind of creative uh, artists to create workshops and spaces for their customers um so it's not just a kind of clothing brand i would say it's much more of a kind of they have there's a whole other element and i think it's it's about education really however they are you know they sell clothes and i and that's mm. what they are so it's i think it's and it's definitely catching when i started mending for toast and doing these kind of thoughtful workshops around what you know how we can mend our garments and make them last longer it just started snowballing lots of people do lots and lots of brands seem to be you know it's the same with levi's and gap and um i get approached often to do workshops for big brands and it's and it's funny because because i've had to say no to some because i just think it just seems <laughs> too, too. i mean yeah it's become a bit of a trend A bit of a
0: sort of sustainable bandwagon type thing,
1: for sure, of course, yeah. Um, But I think, um, but it's funny because it's contentious because yes, it's it's there's definitely a sustainability bandwagon thing. I mean, like H and M have their like responsible, responsibly sourced Mm -hmm. section, but it just seems so funny not to make it entirely. (laughs) that but um but I also think okay well even if it is a um a bit of a move to you know and it's it's more about kind of the brand and 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 what what the brand is kind of makes it look makes them look good Mm. it's still a good thing it's still good it's it's. I think when it comes to repair it's It's such a positive thing and it's such a important thing that even if you get some big brands saying it's important, then that's fine mm. if you know and because people listen to the big what to the big ones and the and the fact that so many brands have realized whether they want to or not, they have to look at this they have to look at the demand for repair and 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 whether they are ethical is great because it means that because we all have access to looking it up now and there's um you know apps where you can check the the whether it's good um okay. or bad mm-hmm. um i think good on you is is a really is like a is one of the um, apps where you can search any brand you could search anything and it will come up with a rate a rating of what they're doing how good they are how bad they are and what their plan is for the future because most clothing brands have a little bit on their website about what they are planning to do so mm. for 2025, 20, <laughs> this is them their goal <clears throat> and um i would say that's the same with supermarkets You know, it's just that thing of like they have to look like they're thinking about it at least.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. As long as you've got a plan, a good intention.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Mm. And the sad thing is, no one ever follows them up on these intentions. So they can just keep saying, oh, within 2025, 2030, 2040, sometime, whenever.
1: Yeah, it's really, yeah, I know. But I think um, it has brought way more awareness and I, I think. What's yeah, striking is that so many people are interested in it and and actually once they come to a repair workshop and there's lots of them going on now, um it's the way it makes them feel and even just learning these really basic, straightforward things, even if you just learn how to darn and then you learn how to patch something properly, then that's some that's knowledge for life. And and then you can teach it to someone else, and that gives you power. I think there's power in mending something, taking it into your own hands.
0: I've recently become aware of just how few people actually know how to s- replace a button. Yeah. Which struck me as incredibly sort of sad and wrong. Uh, for someone thinking about getting into mending their stuff, I mean, do they need a lot of kit?
1: not too much I think they need some basic knowledge that's probably the most important thing and I think that's why I didn't want to go too heavily into it with my book it was kind of like actually you really don't need to know that much it's just the basics so knowing what thread to use knowing what needles to use and knowing what patching material or darning thread that's so you know so useful to know and I can tell you what it is but it's but it actually is very specific so it's and I tried to break it down in the book so it's for example what needle do you use well the needle is the same as the thread so if you look at your thread count on anything so that the t-shirt I'm wearing it's very thinly knit together it's stretch material and actually, the thread itself that it's woven with or, or knitted together with is the smallest thread. So that's what I would need to darn it with. You match the the darn thread to the thread it's made from itself. <clears throat> Otherwise, it's just going to be too way too big. And that's the same with the needle. So you, you'd use a really fine needle to mend something like a T-shirt. Um, same thing with a massive woolly jumper. Then you use big, a big piece of wool and a big needle and it's funny because it can seem really obvious but actually if you're just kind of if you've got a few bits at home you can just be like oh I'm just gonna make you know make do with what I have but actually you can end up in a whole mess and then lose a lot of confidence if you get it wrong so it's worth just investing in some really nice needles, some some good darning threads, and knowing what to use. And I said earlier, with patching material, it's, it, it always has to match. So if you're mending linen, you use linen. If you're using cotton, use cotton. And I, I it's diffi- It's so easy for me as a repairer who's got all sorts of fabrics from over the years, and I've collected them and got lots from different shops. Um, but to have a good array is really hard. So the things you can use from home are anything from an old pillowcase, um, tea towels, and a bit of a weird one, box of shorts. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because even though that seems a bit weird and gross, they are the perfect material because they're often really soft cotton. And what do you do when they're old and holy that you just throw them away? But actually... You can. A lot get, of guys
0: keep wearing them.
1: Yeah, we, I know that's <laughs> the thing. But if you can, yeah, if you can pull them off your sons at home after they are f- fully <laughs> done with, <laughs> then they can be good patching material. And there's all sorts. But yeah, it's it's um, it's it can feel really overwhelming. I really recommend Merchant and Mills, who you can. They have a shop in Rye, but there's online. Um, you can you can get what all sorts of beautiful fabrics from there but also such good tools which are really simple so you just just get a pack of their needles and pins nice nice like pair of scissors and you'll be they'll last for for forever hopefully because that's the other thing that these places do exist which make really beautifully made tools and I say they're tools because that's that's what they are they're kind of mm. you know and and it's and I also always say in my workshops about needles and you know what the best ones to use and stuff is just buy new ones and then you know you can actually sharpen needles with emery boards like a like a kitchen knife um but most people have like dabbled with sewing in their life and they'll have a little kit in their house, but if you're struggling to you know get your get your needles through your garment, then you probably need to replace them. Because <laughs> it is a bit like, hmm. you know, getting a toothpick through denim. Sometimes doesn't really work.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it just struck me that if you go in for visible mending, you don't need that many different colours of darn and thread and whatnot. So there's a big saving there.
1: That's true. That's true. Yeah, you can use whatever you have. Um, but there's, you know, there is also that. That's a nice part of mending, actually, is having a bit of a collection of fabrics and getting it out on your table and just sort of playing with colour. Sometimes, you know, you'll have such a big tear, you need a couple of patches. And I've got like this lovely, light, dusty pink linen pillowcase, which tore in the wash and it had such a big tear on it, and actually. I ended up kind of putting like quite like a nice mauve patch and then a kind of mint green over the top and stitching it all together. And it's a different color, but they work. It's you know, it's like color swatching on your on your when you're painting your house. It's kind of there are colors that are very complementary, even if they are a different one. So you can have real fun with it. I think it's kind of that's a nice part. That's a good process for me is kind of looking at color what will work because not all of them work you can i remember my brother did some darning once on a jumper and he was like this isn't right (laughs) he did it and just was like it's not the right color so he did it again with a sort of more complimentary one um but Mm. that's the other thing i love about darning is you can just remove it if it looks weird just do it again
0: sorry to interrupt but at this point in the pod you're probably wondering where are the ads i missed the ads and you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Garmology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. So, in in the book, there's a wonderful photo of an old Norwegian fisherman's sweater that um, I forget the name of who's repaired it now. But it looks like there was almost less left of the original sweater than the repairs that have been put into it can you tell me a bit about what you know about that and follow-up question when is something not really repairable
1: oh that's a mean question (laughs) 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 well the the uh, jumper you're referring to referring to is by an artist called celia pym uh who's an incredible artist Anyway, but repair is a big part of her practice and she was a great inspiration to me years ago um, I just started repairing myself and then she was on Women's Hour talking about her mending and she because she was part of a v uh, exhibition with her work so she is all about celebrating repair and the memory within garments and the kind of uh, space in between within you know what the jumpers and whatever the garment is holds the story behind it and celebrating those moments and history by filling those gaps with gorgeous incredibly fine darning work she's a real expert on it and how she put that jumper back together i honestly don't know it's it's an incredible feat um but seeing that was just so inspiring obviously and but just so beautiful I just thought it was such an incredible act to look at something that would have been in tatters and think I can put that back together it's kind of incredible and then the the way it looks is just remarkable It's sort of it it's so fully formed again th- despite being so broken there's great massive huge bits of repair that she's she's darned but she's also done lots of knitting and sort of woven that into the garment even around the neck she's she's obviously an expert knitter because she's reformed the the jumper in lots of different areas so that was incredible to see because I think seeing that kind of thing is actually really important and and why I wanted to use examples like that in my book to just prove a point almost is that you think something's too bad it isn't you can mend mostly and basically everything and because a lot of people who have never done repair or seen repair like that before will think that a small tear on their jacket is impossible to mend no idea what to do with it so they just stop wearing it or throw it away but actually it goes from fairly easy to incredibly skilled and if you get into mending, it can be really addictive, actually. And you can just be like, oh, I, I'm going to tackle that next. And I'm going to take <laughs> on this thing. And it turns into a bit of a surgical operation because you have to, you know, like I've repaired many crazy things and like vests that's made from silk with with arm length tears. But it can all be done. It Really, you can just as, as long as you use the same kind of simple techniques, you know, the patch just needs to be really long and you have to you have to put a lot of hours in and doing it by hand is a really important part of to me because I feel like you will get a better it's much easier to repair something by hand it, with a sewing machine it can become quite messy and, and easily broken um again because it's just so strong and 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 heavy as, as a piece of machinery and you you know with something so delicate it's quite dangerous to use anything other than your hands but also by using your hands you, connect to the cloths in so, so much more of an intimate way and you build a relationship with the tear and you understand it better and your hands become intelligent to what it, they're working with uh, you know clipping away stitching stitch by stitch it's incredibly mindful as an act and something very human and that really interests me because I don't feel that we use our hands enough In our day-to-day lives, and the and the feeling that we get from using them can be incredibly positive. So that's another side of things that really interests me. Me. To your difficult question, which is (laughs) how far is too far when it comes to a break? I don't know. I think it totally depends. I think when when something is just you fix it and another tear comes you fix that tear another tear comes it might be worth turning into scrap material I've just recently Mm. mended a friend of mine's shirt which used to be his dad's and it's the most beautiful fine pink cotton and it just keeps breaking it's just endlessly breaking and I'm and I don't have the time to keep mending it but it but it's it's really frustrating because it's so beautiful but I think it's just going to have to be patch material because if you if you literally can't wear it then it's probably too far gone. Yeah. But I wouldn't I don't like saying that too much because I want to encourage mending, you know, because you can take things to big lengths which are unexpected and it's worth trying. So yeah. Mm. Uh,
0: could that be a case of the cotton actually degrading? I saw something recently that if you Put a cotton garment in the ground, water it regularly. It will sort of go back to nature within, was it weeks or just a couple of months?
1: Really? So I was just I thinking know. that
0: pink shirt. And I mean, how many mm. sweaty nights has he worn it out on the town? <laughs> well, he
1: is a musician.
0: Could be the same <laughs> process.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true, Nick. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, I, it's cloth absolutely it degrades, which and and falls apart, and that's what's happening when you wear it. But. Uh, and that's why when you invest in good natural fibers the idea is you can they can you know go into the ground and it won't Mm. cause any kind of problem and they'll just just go back into dust really and that is what will happen if it's made of cotton or linen um or wool really it's just the problem is with the dyeing and the processes that it goes through Mm. but uh, there does come a point when you just can't really wear something because it just will fall apart. And if it's beautiful, I mean, if it's like a beautiful silk blouse, you can frame it. You know, it, I think there's also beauty in making art from clothes and cloth. And mm-hmm. even if you mended it beautifully, and then at least, it, you know, it's a work of art and it's so bright in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. There's, um, there's an a example um, in the book, Uh, one of the examples of repair work is my brother's Indian cushion cover um, which my mum bought originally to hang on the back of her car seat when my brother was a baby for him to look at because it's covered in embroidery and mirrors and it's beautiful Um, but it's really really on its last legs now I've got it because I keep repairing it and now I feel very protective of it so I I don't like people really (laughs) leaning on it (laughs) (laughs) because it's just a little bit too dangerous. Um, But I completely backed it with calico and stitched from one corner to the other corner. So it's entirely covered in stitches and um, similar to an Indian cantha blanket, which are made up Mm -hmm. of old rags and saris, uh, all stitched together with cotton thread. And each stitch kind of is like a staple in a lot of ways. And it just staples the fabric together to each other. And creates this kind of unwadded blanket so it, that's a very similar way of mending uh your clothes but you can do great you can do big things like cushion covers and linen sheets and bed sheets and in a way that can be kind of more enjoyable because you're not as much in a rush when you're mending just sort of big textiles but yeah it's it's very down to the to the individual garment, and I can only ever give advice with something that I can see usually as well.
0: I did have a little fun fact about Norwegian fishing sweaters. Oh yeah, uh, I don't know if it's if it's just an urban legend or, but it, it sort of sounds almost too good to be true. But on the Norwegian coast, all the little fishing villages, they had their own patterns when they knitted their sweaters in case their man fell overboard, drowned, and was fished up or came ashore later, they knew yeah. which town he came from.
1: Yeah. I know, Isn't that great? I've heard that too. It's so good, isn't I mean, it?
0: I don't know if it's true. Sometimes we're going to have to find out. I, mean, I think it's it is good true. A story. <laughs> I,
1: I've, I've heard that before. I mean, I can't tell you where I heard it or read it. But yeah, the little patterns on the side are all... Uh, individual
0: barcodes
1: Mm. yeah (laughs) which is very clever but it's but also what Mm. i love about that is it's really subtle you wouldn't Mm. you're not you know it's not a badge it's not an emblem it's just the way that the knit has been put together so clever
0: kind of like a gang symbol isn't it i mean you see a guy wearing the neighboring town sweater he might get into a bit of a scuffle
1: you might in the water (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, I also wanted to mention, um, I don't know if you've seen photos of Prince Charles in his uh, very, very much repaired wax jacket.
1: I haven't, actually.
0: It's quite an icon because it's obviously horrendously old and it has been yeah. patched so many times.
1: Oh, that's amazing.
0: Uh, and I think that's all part of his eco-sustainable yeah. Yeah. thing which he does.
1: yeah. That's really interesting and surprising. Well well that's what that's what's funny, isn't it? I mean, to think of the kind of Prince of England repairing something is quite uncanny, isn't it? You're like, mm. you know, for obvious reasons. But I think that tells you, yeah, like, you know, a bit about his character really. And and I think that generally repair in this day and age does tell you something about someone's character, you know, if they're interested in it and doing it, because like I said at the start, you don't have to. It's not something mm. that you technically need to do. But I would argue that we do start we we actually do. We kind of are in a in a situation where we start we really do need to start thinking about what we buy and how we use, wash and look after our clothes and and it's great if that you know people have uh uh, status are seen in repaired things because it just you know it's it, it's advertising that way of life, even if it's a bit funny and a little bit kooky. Well, it's
0: I mean it's kind of signalling that their lifestyle isn't all about jetting off in their private jet to their yacht for this luxe yeah. lifestyle, which. A lot of people think it seems super desirable, uh, yeah. and then just showing that, they, yeah, I mean, you've got heaps of money and a massive social position, but you can actually do different stuff.
1: Well, I wonder how much of the kind of make-do and mend thing was going on in the old palace because it's because the queen is very much from that generation, even though she was, <laughs> she would have been, I... she would have been in in her castles. But yeah, it's um, it it is. I think it's funny, like talking to my granny sister, Hibby, who I mentioned in the book, you know, it was just, it's just, there's nothing. um, So, so today we glamour, we not glamorize, but we glorify repair because there is so much to say about it and in a nostalgic way, but also in an important future way. Um, But I also think it's important to remember how every day it was to you know generation or two just before us and how it was just a standard thing that you did and it wasn't you know you didn't make a big deal out of it it was just something that was part of life just like peeling potatoes and it's it's what we can learn from that mentality I suppose because I think the other thing I'm interested in is how again like working with our hands is important how despondent we often feel today a lot of you know a lot of the nation is you know in a state of anxiety or depression about you know what you know living their lives and working with our hands can be a really good way of making us feel better and because a lot because the average sort of working person today doesn't really use their hands I think I would argue that An element of that is the fact that they don't feel like they're useful, like physically, they're not physically using their body. And over lockdown, everyone was stuck at home. And the first things people started doing was old jobs that weren't being, you know, you'd never had time for, like painting the garden shed and putting up a fence or repairing a blanket baking doing stuff mm. with our hands make making use of our bodies and it because it makes you feel better Ooh. it's it, and i think that's an innate human thing which we could do more of
0: it certainly could, we could um, do with you, mentioned, it. <laughs> you mentioned the royal family and maybe they weren't great menders but a long story but i did stay in an airbnb a few years back um with the Duke of Somerset. Oh, really? And, and we were, he's a lovely bloke, and we were allowed to come into his the part where his family lived, of this old mansion. Mm. And I tell you, not a lot of new stuff in there. It was all <laughs> well-maintained, but it was
1: yeah.
0: old stuff. I mean, the yeah. wall tapestries had been repaired, and, mm. I mean, the furniture was old, in good condition. It wasn't a howl, but yeah. – for someone of such a social position, I mean, it wasn't—it wasn't a sort of luxurious place.
1: Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I suppose we're we're given the idea that it's luxury and it's and it's new and it's you know every you know you get new cutlery every time you eat, but I don't think I I don't believe that's true at all. I mean, old kind of even the sort of rich rich the rich people who live in old farmhouses, all you know, it's like the sort of. Yeah, you, know, you. They're all pretty ramshackled and kind of. It's. I imagine it is the same in Balmoral, <laughs> because also it's just it's a lot of its artifacts and its kind of you know hand me downs and. Um. Who knows? That's behind closed doors, but that's interesting.
0: Now, in in closing, I'd like to sort of go to the last chapter in your book which i thought was a really great summary of everything the book is about uh you call the chapter contemplation
1: should
0: mm. you like to go down that lane
1: yes well it was it was really important to to have that little contemplation at the end uh for me because you know, I, mean, I suppose it's just like a a summary, like you say, of just kind of okay. So, what have we learnt, and how do we go forward? And ultimately, you know, I I wanted to address that it's a privilege to mend our clothes in the day, the day, the world we live in. Um, a lot of people don't have that choice, and the fact that these mass-produced clothing markets uh exist is fantastic. It means that everyone can have clothing and people who would have ordinarily struggled to like clothe their babies can because you can afford to do that most of the time because cheap clothes exist. That's really good. And I think it's it's about taking or even just having the awareness really of what it means to be able to mend your clothes or even think about mending your clothes because you can afford to invest in something really worth holding on to and saving and wearing. Um, and the responsibility you have there, and to not just take it lightly and to just think about it really and what it means to men today and why we should um, and why not everyone can and what we can learn from the Eastern world. Uh, historically but also today and uh, the resourcefulness of history and how we used to behave and how difficult it once was and how easy we have it now and what we can learn um and the summary is about looking at ourselves and uh ultimately asking ourselves why are we scared of age aging broken things and how can we change how we look at it and why it's important that we do because the fact that we're constantly being demanded of really to buy new things that there's a sale on there's a sale constantly on with clothes it's never been easier to buy new clothes and replace clothes it's just because you don't really like them anymore. It's not whether they're old or they're broken. It's just literally trends. It's not trendy anymore. Replace it. Keep keep up to date, or, or you'll die. <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, and it's challenging that. And and like I say, it it does feel like a a political act because you are questioning what you're being told and conditioned to feel. And you're saying, actually, I have a choice and I don't have to do anything. In fact, I can make my own decisions about what I wear and how I wear it. And if I repair it, that's so much more than just mending your clothes. For me, it feels like a political act and it feels like a really fantastic thing to learn because it makes you feel good as well. And it's been scientifically proven that slow meditative stitching, knitting, Gardening, doing something repetitive with your hands slows your heart rate, lowers your blood pressure, and ultimately really helps with your mental health as well. So there are so many positives to sewing a patch onto your jumper and or your jacket, whatever it is, and also the confidence it can give you to do that because mending something yourself feels really great. It makes us feel alive present responsible and in charge of who we are and our lives around us and I think they can we can feel so lost by the noise around us and the information that's coming at us and we don't know where everything comes from you go to the shop and you buy a bottle of wine and a you know and like a an apple even you're like I don't know where that came from you didn't pick it from the tree mm. so. It can feel, without you knowing it, quite overwhelming. And I think so. Taking charge of things, like just mending something, can really help your soul. And that's ultimately the the, the most important thing, I think, for me.
0: That's such a beautiful moment to to end on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel uh, totally inspired.
1: Oh, so, good. Uh, well, it's mm. been it's been lovely chatting at you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is there anything you'd like to mention sort of in closing? Anything at all?
1: Um, uh, there is a list of good brands to buy from. If you don't know where to shop kind of ethically on my website under the Art of Repair reading list uh, with some other information. And you can get my book, The Art of Repair, from lots of different retailers um but bookshop.org is probably the best cuz the they they put um, it's like 10% of their funds goes to um high street bookshops which all need it so that's a good place to get it from well yeah you can find it on if you just google it and um yeah and if it makes you want to mend then that's fantastic and if not then just enjoy the stories and feel a bit inspired But hopefully it will make you want to mend anything. It doesn't have to just be clothes. But it's a good place to begin because you just need a needle and thread.
0: Okay, Molly. Bye-bye for now. It was lovely chatting to you.
1: Lovely chatting to you, Nick. All the best. All the best.
0: And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee. Which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest. Just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So, until next week, bye-bye.